on the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. Today on this uh, crisp autumn, October day, I'm relaxing by reading a novel by um, the Japanese uh, writer Mieko Kawakami. It's titled Breast and Eggs. It's a... to cause quite a controversy in Japan because it's um, written from the feminist perspective and it uses quite frank assessments about what it is to be a woman. As I'm reading it, it doesn't even sound feminist, but Japan, <clears throat> despite its many uh, good points, really has uh, so much work to do when it comes to pushing for gender equality. To say Japan is like 20 or 30 years behind in gender equality, it kind of really misses the point. It seems to be in a whole other universe or sphere sometimes. But anyway, Breast and Eggs, it's a great book. Um, one former novelist, this uh, guy, it's the former mayor of Tokyo, he slammed this, he slammed the book for being disgusting. Uh, you know, for doing things like wondering what the point of motherhood was and other things, but uh, that uh, former mayor of Tokyo is kind of a grand idiot. So, anyway, pick up Preston Eggs if you like. Uh, now, I'd like to play a little game, one that should ease the listener into the podcast, beckoning said person into the envelope of philosophical knowledge, sure to follow. I will say a trivia question, and I'll give the listener five seconds to answer. And then we will get into all that other stuff, all that other stuff today being moral realism and error theory. Okay, here we go. Here's the question. What did uh, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, die of? Yeah? What did he die of? Okay, one more time. What disease did Nietzsche die of? Okay, let me count uh, down. Five, four, three, mm, two... One. Now, I bet you uh, thought I was going to say um, syphilis. That's what I thought, too. But out of sheer curiosity, I Googled today, hey, Google, how did Nietzsche catch uh, syphilis? Because uh, I was kind of wondering. Wonder about weird uh, things sometimes. And uh, lo and behold, many people now think that he died of uh, brain cancer. When he was first put into the hospital, he was quickly diagnosed as having syphilis, but this was commonly thought of at the time as being a misdiagnosis. Uh, but in uh, 2003, a study of medical records had found that far from suffering a sexually transmitted disease that drove him mad, Nietzsche almost certainly died of brain cancer. Apparently, he had exhibited none of the symptoms of syphilis. But if you go back and look at his symptoms, including his class, after after trying to defend that horse, Uh, there's a horse being beaten and you try to defend him, Uh, it's very indicative of having a brain tumor. Uh, The doctor who carried out the study claims that the universally accepted story of Nietzsche having caught syphilis from prostitutes was concocted after World War II by Wilhelm Eichbaum, an academic who didn't really like Nietzsche. He was one of Nietzsche's most vehement critics. It was then adopted as a fact by intellectuals who were keen to um, demolished the reputation of Nietzsche, whose idea of a Superman was uh, used to underpin Nazism. Ubermensch. So anyway, today I learned, and uh, you did too, friend. <laughs> anyway, unless you already knew it, then, uh, you know, never mind. On to the main of the episode.
Okay, so last time we talked about J.L. Mackey and his denial of moral realism. Mackey's theory is called error theory. Error in the sense of us all being in error when we talk in our usual style about the morality. In other words, when making moral claims, we act as if moral facts exist in the world. Mackey's error theory consists of two arguments. And I went over them a bit last time. The argument from relativity is the first one we shall examine, and I touched on a bit the last episode. In it, he says that the overwhelming anthropological evidence of looking at moral talk around the world <clears throat> sorry, is that morality is incredibly diverse from culture to culture. And so um, moral talk could um, not possibly be referring to um, some unified group of moral facts given its uh, sheer diversity, you know, very diverse. Rather, morality is just the product of the culture that people find themselves in. And there is rich variation in cultures and their corresponding moralities um, across the globe. Now, let's examine Mackey's argument here. In my humble opinion, yeah, the argument from relativity, it's, it seems kind of weak. Uh, if you look at the work of uh, Michael Walzer, Michael Walzer, he uh, does some work on morality and theory of war, kind of interesting guy. I think he's a communitarian. He describes thick morality and thin morality. There's thick and thin morality. I think that uh, morality is it's often diverse between cultures, but the uh, diversity and richness, well, this, the diversity and richness are in the details. We share a thin level of morality between most cultures. Thin morality. And the words of Walzer, there are two different but interrelated kinds of um, moral uh, spheres, spheres. A way of talking among ourselves here at home about the thickness of our own history and culture, including our democratic political culture. And a way of talking to people abroad across different cultures about the thinner life that we all have in common as mm, humans. We most likely share a great deal in common with any functional society across distance and time. Furthermore, moralities that people held historically would, you know, probably not be held if other options were available. These are my words, not Walter's now. The divine right of kings, you know, for example. Yeah, it might seem like a sensible moral principle to abide by if a civil war is the um, only other option. But when you realize that people can live uh, peacefully in a more democratic society, a more representative society, it seems hard to believe that um, people guaranteed their safety and security would choose to adhere to a divine right of kings. You know, unless you're the king of France, of course. Yeah, you know, he's somebody who stands to directly benefit from the divine right of um, kings. Okay, likewise, people who hold uh, you know, misogynist moralities would... Uh, likely shed them if they were exposed as being a mere rationalizing device for oppression and exploitation, you know, if the naked ugliness of them were, you know, were exposed. They could still hold their misogynistic beliefs, of course, but at a certain point of investigation, a rational actor must acknowledge that it is a mere self-interested exploitation and misogyny itself, it's, it's not a moral code. The oppressed class usually sees this first. Uh, and hopefully the oppressor class does so in time. I think it's telling, you know, that a lot of misogynistic ideas still hanging around um, modern societies are based on the shakiest of what the misogynist believes is science. What the misogynist believes is science on apparent uh, gender differences. And even though this subset of misogynists who refer to flimsy science are hopefully at the fringes of society, they are still playing the game of giving and asking for reasons with us when they're seeking to show us evidence 
we both can appeal to. They just, you know, have a hard time accepting the flimsiness of that uh, of that uh, evidence of that bad science. I'm not saying that this subset of misogynists can be rationally convinced, but they are still in the arena of public discourse. Uh, I don't mean to suggest convincing them or convincing people who believe in the divine right of kings, if any still do, that uh, this is as easy as the 10 or so sentences that I'm devoting to it here. You know, it's a, it's a hard uh, historical process. But, you know, cross-cultural recognition of shared values occur on a daily basis in our modern multicultural societies. The whole idea behind the possibility of having a civil society and multicultural societies is that uh, we can get together in agreement on the big general questions. Not every agreement in the multicultural society is uh, a grudging compromise. If it was, why bother, you know, having immigration at all? The promise of these grand social experiences is that we will discover our shared values if construed generally enough. It's uh, kind of odd, but a lot of people who espouse culturally based moral relativism tend to support multiculturalism, but I think a far more robust defense can be uh, vouched in uh, supporting a theory that emphasizes the values that uh, humanity holds in common, rather than saying, you know, our value system is radically different. Now, we could possibly trace our shared values or our potential to come to realize our shared shared values. Uh, that may be a better way to put it. On evolutionary self-preservation grounds. Personally, I, you know, I have an inkling that there is a more richer way to spell out our shared values. Evolutionary psychology quickly veers into dangerous grounds, but... Let's uh, take that road for the moment. According to self-preservation, it's, you know, it's better to be a peasant subject to a king than a refugee in a civil war, for example. But it's better to be a citizen in a liberal democracy in 2020 than either of those uh, two things in simple terms of uh, self-preservation. There are some times when people have experienced liberal democracy who have chosen to abandon it. You know, there, ha- there are some things that go against this example. But this is because that impoverished version of liberal democracy that they experienced, they experienced where it was incapable of guaranteeing self-preservation. You know, uh, let's look at Russia. One of the reasons that strong men like Vladimir Putin are supported was that life expectancy went down in the Russia post-USSR quasi-liberal democracy under Boris Yeltsin and Putin, someone, put an end to that dip. You know, Putin came in and he kind of stabilized things a bit. Self-preservation was put at risk by the neoliberal policies on steroids in Russia during the uh, 1980s, as evidenced by this dip. And it's fair to say uh, that there was, if there was no threat to self-preservation, if there was no dip in life expectancy, Putin would have no mandate. He would have no legitimacy. Now, 
even initially seemingly liberal, illiberal things like the Muslim tradition of women wearing a burqa. You know, these things are now defended by Muslim women and and uh, many people as representing their rational, informed choice of what they believe, living a good, authentic life, consistent. In other words, wearing a burqa is, you know, being defended using liberal dem- democratic terminology and is justified in those terms. It seems that if liberal democracy wasn't the preferred choice of those wearing the burqas, they would have no need to couch a defense of it in liberal democratic terms. I can't imagine the need for a justification based on rational informed choice for religious practice arising in an earlier era. No one would request it and one would not be prepared to uh, offer one. So I think generally what I'm trying to say is if people experience liberal democracy, they likely don't go back on it except in some extraneous circumstances and even things that some people some people might think of as breaking up democratic morality like wearing a burqa those things are you know actually can fit well in within the liberal democratic system and justification for it is couched in those terms now getting back to my more general point it is definitely difficult to show how we all as rational human beings share a thin sense of a common morality um But, you know, I think at least we can say that the diversity of thick moral frameworks shouldn't prima facie, am I saying that right, prima facie, be used as a reason to deny that there isn't a great deal of general moral principles that most cultures hold in common. So, you know, I think the... The burden is on Maggie to show that this actual diversity doesn't have a thin level of shared morality underneath it. Now, onto the queerness argument of Mackey's. Mackey says that a moral fact would indeed be a very strange thing. Uh, but you know, you know, it would be a strange thing. It'd be quite. Uh, Yeah, uh, strange, but not implausible. You know, we have lots of other facts that are queer or strange in the sense that Mackey defines, you know, of not being able to fit into the narrow mold of being empirical facts. And uh, empirical facts are the only ones that Mackey seems to hold as being non-queer, non-strange. Remember, before we had said that everyday knowledge and know-how in the world is reliant on mathematical and logical truth. He just couldn't function as a human being without it. Uh, Is everyday cognition reliant on moral facts? Well, that's kind of a difficult question. There's amoral people, certainly sociopaths, for example. Nevertheless, morality does seem to hang over every social interaction that you have. So just as, you know, mathematical and logical knowledge helps you navigate your way through the world, and if you didn't have it, you couldn't navigate your way in the world, um, morality seems to do the same thing. Now, let's look at an example of something I think is a, you know, common knowledge as a moral fact. Um, let's look at this. Uh, you know, one thing you shouldn't do in society is uh, don't non-consensually gnaw or lick someone's arm. I think it's pretty basic. Don't non-consensually gnaw or lick someone's arm. Now, let's say this is a background moral fact. Yeah, I, I think there's a cornerstone of human interaction in all societies, even though particular construals of it may differ. You know, if there's a society that doesn't have this taboo against non-consensually gnawing or licking someone's arm, then they probably have a fairly complex system of morality to explain why arm gnawing is permissible. 
In an argument for moral realism, it's not so necessary to show that a particular trait is universally held, though that could be helpful to the cause. Rather, it may be better to show that at least one system of morality must be held by at least one of the participants present. If we are to classify that interaction as human interaction at all. So by system of morality, we don't need anything thick. Let's just say that for humans to be considered having a social interaction, humans acting as humans, we need at least a thin level of morality, a veneer even. And that could be that human interaction needs to be guided by the reasonable expectation that we believe person X in interactions with us will abide by certain norms regarding behavior towards us to the extent that we have a reasonable assumption of redress if a particular social norm is violated. By reasonable assumption of redress, uh, we are um, justified in um, at least complaining about it. Justified to who? Well, you know, that's a good question. A hypothetical or actual third party belonging to at least the same shared moral background as one of the participants. Even in a prisoner's dilemma type situation, we could be considered a, you know, being involved in moral human interaction if at least one of the participants had a reasonable expectation in the situation that everyone would act in their self-interest. If one assumes others will be selfish, then it's potentially, you know, a shared morality. And not a great morality, but, you know, something held in common. So morality here, very thinly conceived, becomes a matter of reasonable expectations in regards to human interaction and in violation of these expectations there's a reasonable assumption of redress for example if uh, someone acts out in such a way that they not only hurt others but they hurt themselves they hurt their own um, self-interest uh, the person would be right to complain that that person is not following the rules um, you know it's self-destruction this allows morality to provide its structure stabilizing role, these reasonable expectations, allowing individuals to interact with each other with reasonable assumptions. You know, if you could not hold these reasonable assumptions that the person will act in accordance with certain social norms, then, you know, there would be no reason to interact with them. Uh, interaction would be a personal risk to your welfare, or it may be, you know, a risk without these assumptions you would never know because you'd never, you'd never enter into social interaction. So this allows us to explain why some people decide to become shut-ins or hermits. They become paranoid and lose the assumption that people will follow a certain code. They may believe that the person, you know, the next person on the street will lunge out and stab them. It may also explain why the whites of our eyes evolved. Our eyes convey so much emotion and intention that allows us to build a basis of readable intentions on the most visible parts of our bodies. These readable intentions right there and, you know, smack dab in your face may have been the basis that led reasonableness to one's assumptions. These assumptions differ in particular, of course, with each society, but eh, their aim would be to provide, you know, basically security and trust. From security and trust, social interaction in society could develop among early humans. You know, the aim of this is to show that not necessarily that moral facts exist, you know. Uh, can't be that ambitious, though. I hope to lead the listener in that direction. But the moral facts must be at least on the same ontological footing as mathematical facts or logical facts. 
on the same footing in virtue of their status that no human could be, you know, seen as fully human without the ability to access them in their cognition. And we can do this without having to affirm that any particular moral facts are held in common by humanity. Uh, rather, we can claim that only the thin base structure of reasonable assumptions with uh, redress needs to be universalizable. You know, Mackey says that it is not apparent that humans have a moral faculty that allows them to identify moral facts the way that, you know, our senses are faculties that allow us to identify empirical facts. But I think that we can identify a collection of abilities that may be loosely seen as being a moral faculty. Psychopaths, you know, have uh, unique brain scans that are obviously pathological with low activity in certain areas of the frontal and temporal lobes lead to empathy, morality, and self-control. You got the science right there. Uh, I wouldn't want to reduce morality to specific areas of the brain, but it seems like someone who favors empirical evidence like Mackey would have to respect evidence that showed the linking between physiological activity in the brain and our moral activity. Although a lot of that, you know, a lot of our knowledge of these, uh, you know, brain activities occurred after Mackey wrote his book and passed on, it uh, seems that science has allowed us to get to the point where we can see that there yeah, is no special queerness or strangeness in believing that we have a moral faculty or at least parts of the brain that respond to moral thinking. So anyway, I'm in the head. Uh, so I'm going to stop in there. Anyway, there we go. That is uh, moral realism, error theory, and a possible response done with in you know somewhat haphazard way in any case uh, as always thank you for listening on the very idea a philosophy podcast